We are pleased to announce the film selected as the Best Picture nominees. They are The Big Short. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. Greed, fraud, dishonesty, and arrogance. These are some of the words that best describe the reality of Wall Street today. Hey, welcome everybody to episode two of Culture Caucus, Bloomberg Politics brand new podcast exploring the intersection of politics and culture. I'm John Heilman here with the great. I can't say I'm Will Leach. I'm not the great Will Leach. But you Will are Leach. the you're the one and only Will Leach. <laughs> that part is true. Will, our topic today is going to be Wall Street yes. and its political cultural dimensions. Um, a topic that's very much in the news these days, partly because of the rise and the surge and the excitement surrounding Bernie Sanders, who's making a lot of arguments about uh, Wall Street and Wall Street reform on the campaign trail. Also, very much in the news in the world of culture because of the kind of out of left field success, um, not just critical, not, not just commercial success, but also critical success and Oscar success of the big short. Um, so let's start just talking about that. Yeah. That's a movie I saw on a screener over Christmas. Uh, it had already started to get a lot of buzz. I thought it was incredible. I know you have a lot of detailed thoughts about it, so go. Yeah, well, what's interesting with The Big Short, it was definitely never really considered a big Oscar contender, if just because it was Adam McKay, who is, of course, a comedy director, one of Will Ferrell's guys. And it, the, the trailer made it look interesting, but not like Oscar material. But I, the thing I think is, I love The Big Short. I think it's a terrific film. And one of the reasons it's terrific is I think it does a better job than any other film, uh, including like Margin Call, or specifically, as I like, in a way, I'd like to talk about Wolf of Wall Street. It puts voice to that anger that you're talking about. It, it is quite explicit about it. Like, it, like it, it, the movie basically sets itself up with a challenge. Can we get across in an entertaining, easy to understand way how much of assholes these guys were? Right. And and it does that in a way. And I think that's you know the book. It, it's wry in the way the book is. I like to think of that as asshole mucho. Uh, yes, exactly. Question mark. Exactly. Yes. That was I, that was my uh, nickname yes. in junior high. Um, fabulous. So. That to me, I think that's what people are responding to. You know, the the movie is willing to try any trick. Like, here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath. Here is like here it's explained to you what exactly these people did. I think it is resonating in a way that some of the other movies that have been made about the financial crisis have not quite been able to. Margin Call was the first, and I think it's about the kind of the the event that got all this kicked off. It's kind of a fictionalized version of that. But that is it's almost like, like it's a very good movie. But it's very clinical. It's very it's almost procedural in a lot of ways. And it, if you if you don't if you're not involved in the financial world, there are certain parts of that movie that that movie's going to leave you cold. Wolf of Wall Street, I think Scorsese is really trying to say these people are assholes, but he's Scorsese and he does it in such a cool way. He does it in a here's what they're here's what they are. Scorsese is, is a decadent. He's a decadent is, filmmaker. He's a decadent filmmaker, yeah. and he, he he there's something about. You know, he shoots the whole thing like he's shooting the Rolling Stones at the course, weekend, right? And course. so there's an element of which, like, by design, when, which is when, by design. Oh, of course. But yeah. when Scorsese sees something decadent on screen, yeah. even if his moral code wants to criticize it, he's <laughs> he can't so help it, he's so drawn to yeah, it that yeah. he can't help but make it look sexy. Yeah, and I, and I think that is part of the point too. Is that like this is what it felt like to them to do this to be a part of this? And there, are, of course, there, there are these little dark moments where he's doing the narrate, where Jordan Belfort's doing the narration, yeah. and he's like, oh, yeah, he killed himself a few years later, but whatever. Back to the party. Right. And I think it's worth knowing that I think any 
reasonable viewer watches that movie and says, man, these guys are such jerks. But it's worth saying this is the same problem that happened with Boiler Room when it came out. Right. There's this the, the, a movie about Wall Street, or a movie about like these traders who ultimately, you're like, man, these people are all jerks, except for the people that actually work in the industry watch and be like, I want to be Jordan Belfort. I want to be Ben Affleck in, right. in Boiler Room. What I think is great about The Big Short is it actually does – Bring it down to the to the regular person level right. in a way that like ninety nine homes is another movie that came out this year about right. the housing crisis that yep. doesn't it doesn't do it right. and the Big Short has done that in a way that I don't think anyone has actually ever done before. I, you know, it's interesting as I watched it, I thought you know one of the things that I I thought would be a challenge for this movie, right, which has been the case of of Michael Lewis's last two books that he does very well is. You know, the challenge of who you're going to root for in a movie. You've got to have someone to root for. You know, hard to, that, there's got to be someone who's a hero or at least someone who, again, who the audience identifies with. You know, this movie has an incredible array uh, of, 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 of A-list actors in it, right? So Christian Bale, who's been nominated for an Academy Award uh, for playing a slightly um, on the spectrum uh, yes. trader based mm-hmm. in California. You know, you've got uh, Ryan Gosling. Uh, as the kind of bank guy who's so to, like so slick and oleaginous right. that you kind of maybe also right. super charismatic, right? Yeah. But the person I think in the movie who, and then this goes to your point, who ends up being, although he's as much a part, as much complicit in the whole uh, the scheme, right, right, which is to to bet against the housing yeah. market and profit from the downfall of the American economy, which on some level is a morally kind of yeah. uh, disgraceful act, but who, but is he's much part of it as anybody, but he because of the way in which he is positioned in the film. Uh, becomes, I think, the character that people identify with is Steve Carell. Steve Carell's character, and he is terrific. Like he was great in Foxcatcher. This is actually my favorite Steve Carell performance. Right. I would have, I like Christian Bale in this, but his is almost more of a conventional like guy. Like you know, is a more I've seen that story before. There's a little this. It's a little Ray Manish. But, yeah, you know, and, not, not that, but not, but but not that different. Yeah, from. and but Steve Carell is like he is the sputtering voice of the. What are you people doing? Yes. How are you actually pulling this off? And he's so good at. It. And it's funny, you know. One of the things that uh, Truffaut has the famous quote about, like you wouldn't want to, you can't really make an anti-war film because it always makes war look too much like too much fun. Which is something that, for as great as I think Wolf of Wall Street is, it falls prey to that a little bit just because you're right. Scorsese is so decadent; he's having so much fun. You could say this is this guy is an image of what's uh, wrong with Wall Street. He's decadence uh, yeah. and greed run amok, etc. But you know there are a bunch of bros on Wall of Street course. who are like, yeah, man, that looks like fun. Of Let's course. go do that thing. You know, and and I think that is by design. Right, but like. This movie, I think because specifically it's just trying to be like, these people are monsters. This is what they did to you. Get angry. Right. I, I mean, it's explicitly stated in the movie several yeah, times. Sure. I think – and no one – in and I, what I find interesting, a, a quieter part of this movie, the movie that's really not that quiet, which is another thing I kind of like about it. Right. It's why it's funny that it's such an Oscar hit because right. this is not – Really, your traditional Oscar movie? No, is, quite, the, I, quite the opposite. Yeah, which know? is I think is one of the reasons I enjoy it so much. Uh, but nobody in this movie seems to be having any fun making money, right? And they, they don't, but they're not like miserable. About, but they're just like drones in and all. Like even the stack guys, they're all just right. nerdy guys sitting around in a, in a sad little cubicle all day. Manipulating the financial system. We're going to have uh, Brian Kaufman on this podcast in a couple minutes, and we're going to talk about his new series, Billions, which is on Showtime um, and has Damien Lewis in it and Paul Giamatti in it. And is a very quintessentially New York kind of story. It's drama. It's got some things that are funny about it. And I think it very much profits from the same environmental, cultural moment that we're in and that the big short, I think, exemplifies, right? Which is the truth is that for a lot of people, there's still not been catharsis on the question of the financial crisis, right? You had – um, a, a, the crisis. You had the fallout from the crisis. You had people who struggled through the Great Recession. You had 
hearings on Capitol Hill. You had a big piece of legislation that got passed in the form of Dodd-Frank. Um, but no, th- there was no moment of national yeah. reckoning. Right. There was no villain who was ever uh, prosecuted in a big way. There was no, there were only a couple people gone to jail. And um, you had Bernie Madoff who was on, on the fringes of it. But nothing yeah. and that even was a separate sus- situation altogether. But right, nothing was systemic. Yeah, right. That's Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Right. But yeah, he became, he's got a symbol, but it's not a symbol of this thing. He's right. a symbol, he right. ran his own Ponzi scheme, right. whatever. It's, they never had this moment where, um, where people feel as though, okay, we've fully dug into this. We now understand what happened. We've now brought someone to justice and now we can move on. And it's that kind of submerged sense in the body politic of, of kind of simmering, um, uh, confusion, um, and, and, and bottled up frustration that I think has made the big short a phenomenon because it is, as you say, it's the moment where it's like, yes, that's what I've been looking for. Yeah. That's a cult. This is a popular cultural expression of something I've kind of been feeling for years, but I couldn't even really put my finger on it until I saw this movie. And now I understand I'm still pissed off about this thing that happened that no one ever really properly explained or no one was ever properly held accountable for. Yeah. Another thing the movie does well too, is it also gets at the fact that this kind of corruption may actually be baked into the system and, and may actually be and if you if they get in trouble for it eh, someone's going to come help them and fix it anyway right. and i think that is i think that's done very well with steve carell's character too right. who who is who ultimately is conflicted about this in a way that surprises even him right and to state the obvious you know it's it's a part of in the context of the presidential campaign it's why thousands of people show up at the bernie sanders yeah. rallies and they're not just the people on the far left i mean she's he's doing better than hillary clinton with independent voters He's, it, it, they're the people who are, are not just, you know, the so self-identified socialists in right, Iowa right. Um, that we found in our last Bloomberg Politics to win register poll. A huge number of, of the Democratic uh, electorate out there consider themselves socialists. Interesting fact. <laughs> but Sanders is also doing better than Hillary Clinton with independents. And it's those independents who are super frustrated with the political system, who are super frustrated with the establishment across the board, the financial establishment, the media establishment, who, who are homeless, basically. They're pissed off. This and, is where the Trump-Sanders crossover is. Right, and the, and the, and the Trump-Sanders, yeah. vo- the, they're giving voice to that kind of ecumenical, bipartisan, nonpartisan frustration. You know, the moment that the same impulses and animating uh, uh, imperatives that get people to show up at a Bernie Sanders rally uh, in Iowa who are not, you know, uh, uh, the guys in Seattle or the guys in, in, in the East Village here in New York City, but who are, you know, um, again, the classic independent voter who lives in Boone, Iowa, who shows up and is like, who is like, here's Bernie Sanders saying the things he says and says, yeah, you know, that guy, you know, he's cutting through the clutter. And the movie does the same thing. And, and I also get to that idea of there are unexpected conduits to this. Like who would have thought that Donald Trump would be the person that would be or, – or Bernie Sanders would be the person that would be the conduit for these things. The people in this movie are not crusade like they're not really crusaders. They're not really right. – but they – they it, you take your battles where you can. You fight your wars where you have them and you use the warriors that you have. And I think that – I think that's – the movie does that very well. So it has been exciting for me to see – the, again, the Big Short was not. They thought maybe he could get a screenplay, yeah. uh, maybe Bale or Carell. But to see not only Best Picture but Best Director, like there are, right now, there are three movies I think have to have a legitimate chance to win, and that's one of them. Let's 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 hear what the others are, so I can either agree with you wholeheartedly mm. or denounce you on the air, <laughs> okay. denounce you in this podcast for being obviously wrong. Go okay, ahead. well, I think it's uh, uh, the Big Short. Obviously, is yeah. one of them. Yeah. Uh, Spotlight yeah. is probably the favorite. That's and the I, obvious call. Yeah, I think, so, and I think yeah. the Revenant. I think the Revenant showed okay. a strength. 
uh, people are reacting to that movie in a kind of a primal way, and it sort of strength across the line in, in the nominations. That I think Lovell didn't think it was gonna, and DiCaprio is going to win. Right. So I think it's got a chance. Those well, are the three. Once again, you've sort of like staggered, sort of um, haphazardly into the truth, and I'm I'm always pleased when I see that happen. With your word, <laughs> I, my drunken walk is my best walk. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Will, what do you think? It's time to bring in our guest. When did it become a crime to succeed in this country? Everyone has access to the information. We just know how to analyze it better. His name is Brian Koppelman. He is, well, first of all, brilliant. Second of all, charming. Third, savagely handsome. Uh, and uh, Well, that third really gave lie to the first two. Yeah. That's yeah. not... That's not nice. And a friend. That's true. Um, and someone whose work I really admire. Um, Brian is one of the creators, writers, showrunners of the brand new Showtime drama. Drama? You think it's a drama? Sure, yeah. It's, it's a drama, it's, but it's... it's with you know, humorous moments. It has moments of humor. Yes. Uh, like life itself. Yeah, like life itself. Um, it's called Billions, and it's a show that plays on Showtime in its initial run on Sunday nights at 10 o'clock on that fabulous network um, <laughs> in which we both have a little bit of a stake in the moment. Um, Billions is a Wall Street um, drama, we've now determined, um, and we're going to talk about it for a little while here, um, uh, which fits into the theme of this episode mm-hmm. um, quite nicely. So welcome, Ryan. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. I've uh, attended professional basketball games with each of you. Mm-hmm. Separately. Separately. Yes. Not together. Um, if you come with us, if you, if you go to a professional basketball game with us together, you won't get out alive. Right. Yeah. No, that's it's, clear. It's, it's, it's totally oh, wait, are we still counting the Nets as professional basketball, just to be oh. clear? Or? You know what? That is a hell of a point. I went to a professional <laughs> basketball game with you, Will. Yes, that's because correct. Because we went to Madison Square Garden. Because we're Knicks fans. And we saw the Knickerbockers. <laughs> that's right. John and I attended a <laughs> scrimmage of some sort in the Bronx. Okay. Yes. You're totally right. That's just with, with the sound of the, of the bouncing ball echoing off the empty chambers of the theater. Everybody was sitting very calmly, though. It was almost like being at a reading uh, of some like beat poetry in yeah. the 50s. <laughs> Occasionally someone would snap and uh, everyone, something good happened on the court. The only I think you and I saw four fistfights break yes. out near us and uh, had beer poured on us. Yeah, but it's, it's that, at, yeah. at least we were watching basketball. It, yeah, it's it's yeah, beat, it's beat poetry with, would with that have been, nicer food. Would that have been, <laughs> yeah, so that was, Barclays Center. So that was in the nineties when you went to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden. Oh, When's the last time? Well, was, that was not, in the nineties. What? 90? Why are we talking? Hey, this is a Wall Street show. That was in the nineties. Whose was, idea was it to talk about basketball? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you guys have attended a uh, basketball game together. I've attended a basketball game with Brian. More to the point of this moment, as I've actually also been on an, a podcast that this podcast can only dream. Of being culture caucus can only dream of being as great as the podcast that Brian hosts. That's called the moment. The moment. Um, I was on that podcast with Brian. I'll confess that I had an incredibly good time being on the podcast with Brian. I'll also confess that I was really, really high on pig painkillers when I appeared on it, or appeared on it when I spoke to Brian on it. So I don't remember much of it except I had a nice, really warm feeling. But I had nothing to do with Brian and everything to do with the oxycodone that was coursing through my veins. <laughs> I at have that, that warm feeling whenever you and I are together, John. So yeah. you can yeah. ascribe it to whatever you want. All right. So okay, yeah, let's, let's do let's, this thing. Let's so okay, billions, right? Yes. Um, where did it come from? How? Just talk about. Take us through the genesis story of billions. Sure. I mean, as you said, it's a show that deals with Wall Street. It also deals um, with the United States Attorney's Office, uh, United States Attorney of the Southern District. And um, for us, it started to become clear that those things um, could be linked. And um, Dave and I had long David Levine, who's my creative partner in all sort of the, the films and television stuff that I've ever done. 
um, and is you know my, my lifelong closest friend. Uh, Dave and I had been thinking about how uh, U.S. attorneys, in particular, uh, have king-like powers, right? Because the amount of discretion they have in in terms of um, who they prosecute, why they prosecute, uh, the way in which they can deal with witnesses that's different from the way in which DAs can deal with witnesses, all sorts of different things. RICO uh, makes the United States attorney very powerful. And then we'd also noticed and had been thinking about billionaires, particularly hedge fund billionaires for a long time, who strike us as nation states because they have all the things that nation states have, right? They have this tremendous amount of resources, financial resources, which allows them to have flotillas of boats, which allows them to have uh, fleets of aircraft, uh, people with arms around them. And so th- the idea of each of these worlds was fascinating. And then we met uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who had been thinking of a television show uh, about stuff that had been happening with United States attorneys and, and hedge fund people. And we realized that Andrew's perspective and ability to connect us with many of the real-life players um, meant that we could write a show that had a kind of authenticity that really no television series set in this world has ever had. Um, we also realized that since 2000, you know, the all of the books and m- most of the books, there are a couple of books that deal with hedge funds post uh, the crash. But most of the stuff de- dealt with events up to 2008. And we were really interested in why nobody had been prosecuted, really. Uh, why um, why things went quickly back to the same sort of frothy atmosphere, not, not in the country, as uh, your friend Mr. Sanders would say, but for the hedge funds. And so it just seemed set up for it. Plus, Dave and I have always been fascinated by American commerce, men in American commerce, uh, the way in which... Um, Men try to gain dominance and uh, and power, and then also the role of women now uh, and powerful women within that. And this just seemed like the perfect landscape for it. One thing I'm always curious about. We talked about this on our earlier podcast uh, earlier on in the show was the idea of anytime you do something about the financial sector, it's it's, well, it's kind of what Truffaut said about war, making a war film. It's hard to make a war film without war making war look kind of fun. And it seems like in a lot of these, in a lot of shows, in a lot of movies about finance, it's it's hard not Wolf of Wall Street being a great example of this. Like Wolf of Wall Street, I think is a very strong message against this kind of world. But Scorsese went at it in a way that makes it look so fun that sometimes they miss the point. Like Almost you, pornographic. Yeah, like you see young Wall Street guys being like, "Oh yeah, I want to be, I want to be Belfort," and, and so on. Do you, do you guys think about that when you put this together? I mean, listen, Damien Lewis is a handsome man. I personally find Paul Giamatti a handsome man, uh, but certainly, you know, th- there's a casting as one as as the the well, public. The great sector thing about being able to do a TV series, and it's been interesting to me. You know, the feedback has been it's a, the show certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, and we've. But when I look at the the sort of uh, underneath it, those kind of questions, uh, it it's great to me because what a TV show allows in the first season is 12 episodes. 12 episodes to take you from uh, wondering about the frothy atmosphere (laughs) to where do we end up Mm -hmm. in episode 12 and of the first season of the show. And yeah, is it intentional that at first Bobby Axelrod uh, is hard to root against? (laughs) Sure, it's intentional. Mm -hmm. Of course Mm -hmm. it's intentional. And so the question is, uh, can you examine this over a long enough period of time in a novelistic way that enables you to, yeah, sure, 
uh, see what's alluring about the world, but also to see what's underneath it. And I read uh, Wolf of Wall Street differently than you read it. I, while I think you can look at the unintended consequence of Wolf of Wall Street, which you're pointing out, yeah. but I look at the cut from his second wife, uh, Margot Robbie, uh, that she's naked against those curtains and is supposed to seem like the single most alluring woman mm-hmm. in the world. And then the cut is to him basically not even being able to have sex with her. Oh. Because he's so bored. Yeah. That even that, the, right. the ultimate uh, ideal of what money and power can get you, as presented by Scorsese, is empty. Oh, for I, Jordan. I agree with you. No, and so I, I do not think I don't think that, that Scorsese is I would say in Truffaut, one of the smartest people ever to think yeah. about or write about film, uh, it, actually, I think there have been many war pictures made since yeah. that um, actually uh, prove that in that one instance, he was correct. Yeah. There are war pictures that make war look like no fun at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at the Kubrick film, for one. Uh, there are many that make it Full seem... Full Metal Jacket yeah. would be the film you're referring yes, to. Yes, that make it seem uh, like... Uh, anyone who knows that knows it's Kubrick's yeah. film. So it doesn't uh, make war training look like very much fun either. <laughs> no, it makes war look horrible. The second <laughs> yes. half of that movie... Right, right, right. There's no... He doesn't... He, he took... Uh, absolutely sucked all of that stuff yeah. out of it. Yeah. So I think it's about how you want to... Yeah, the big red one makes war look fun in certain yeah. ways. Um, and... and uh, but, but I think... Um, I know it seems like a target that's worth trying to hit. Yeah. Anyway, and and we didn't want to just decry. It's really easy to just get up and 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 say all oh, these people suck, but we found it to be more interesting. I mean, it's funny, you know. You watch, you watch your show, John, Circus, and and uh, and read your books. A lot of that seems really fun too, and mm-hmm. then a lot of that seems like underneath it, uh, you wonder what their agendas really are. And I, I, to us, we think like, well, let's 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 try to draw these people in a way that sucks you in, makes you care, and then makes you examine why. Just to go w- w- one step further, why I- I are we in a country that, uh, that no matter what politicians say or how we vote, um, we are fascinated by really wealthy, successful people? Why is Mark Cuban, who I know a little bit and think is a good guy, but why is Mark Cuban a hero? Why is Mark Cuban like the most popular reality star since the candidate who's running, uh, currently leading the polls on the Republican side, right? What is it about that show, about uh, Shark Tank and, and those people there, those wealthy people, wh- why do we celebrate them? Why, why do we aspire to be them as a culture? And we unquestionably do, or they wouldn't have six shows and spinoffs based on that. Uh, so I, I think was, it's worth exploring. I want to say that, that, if, that, if, uh, that I like Mark Cuban, too, and I know him reasonably well, but it, it, the, maybe the most potent argument against Donald Trump being president is that it would set a precedent that might allow Mark Cuban to eventually be president. I think that if you were going to think about why you don't want Trump to win, that might be the main reason. Um, uh, just go further. Why shouldn't Mark be president? I would I, take Mark over to, today I'm over just, Trump. I'm just saying. I, lo- I really like Mark, but I don't want him. I, that's a guy whose finger I do not want <laughs> on, on the nuclear trigger. I'm sorry. It's just not good. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have, I'll, I'll I'll quote. I, have a lo- I have a lot of questions, okay? All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a really simple one, okay? So one of the things that people love about Billions already, even though it's only been out for a couple days, the first episode just aired. And the second episode's available on demand and will be on already on Showtime On Demand, and people are watching it, and it'll be on uh, Sunday Night 10. Okay. So one of the things that people are already fascinated by is the notion of um, the extent to which this is Romana Clay, right? So um, Preet um, 
whose last name I can never pronounce correctly. Preet Bharara. Thank you. Um, and uh, and Steve Cohen, right? Are, I don't really know who that is. Right. So those two guys are both, everyone assumes that those are the models for these two characters. To what extent is that true? So, yeah, that's not true at all. Um, first of all, we've met with maybe 12 billionaires um, and many more hedge fund managers who are just sub-billionaires. Yeah. We have not met with Steve. I've never shaken Steve Cohn's hand. I've never met him. I've never been in a room with him, I don't think. Um, I mean, I know I've never met him or spoken to him. I, I could have been in a Madison Square Garden with him sometime. Right, but you, but you're, you know who Steve Cohn is. No, of course. Yeah, you're aware of Steve Cohen. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, of course I am. <laughs> but we you have, could base the character on Steve Cohen having never met him. One could. You could. But what but one we didn't. tried to do, what, what we tried to do. There's a rich Steve Cohen literature out there, you know. There is, but what, what we tried to do, and, and, and I'll, I'll speak to Preet too, we spent time with Preet Bharara. Um, but we also spent time with other people in high levels of prosecutorial enforcement. Right. And, and, um, and I would say that the office that Preet sits in is the most powerful United States Attorney's Office, and it is the one that goes after these financial crimes. So no question, and that's the office. It's right. the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, right? Yeah. Um, and Preet was generous with his time and has been really generous in his reaction to the show, coming <laughs> to the premiere, laughing sat, it up I about sat, it. I sat next to him at the premiere and his wife while I had to watch the... Uh, the people right. who uh, I had to watch the the characters on which maybe they were or maybe they were not based. The wife urinating on mm. her husband's chest in the opening scene of the show, which was a great scene and pays off incredibly at the at the end of the episode. But I was felt a little awkward. Well, sitting, fact, you I just sat, spoiled felt, it by saying it was his wife urinating. Well, oh, everybody uh, will have uh, seen this uh, by I'm, Friday. Everyone <laughs> yes. in the world will have already seen the show. You no, know, it's I true. Just, it's fine. It's, it pays off. But no. But I know, sat here. next to the woman and I felt a little awkward. Well, you shouldn't because it is 100% not based on her. <laughs> then, I mean, so you shouldn't have said, and, and, oh, yeah, so what was that like? I think she made it a point to say to somebody that she didn't have the right boots. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, I think she said that that night. No, but look, you look at... The character Bobby Axelrod is going to do things that will remind people of various different right. hedge fund titans as the series goes on. Right. And um, in we mentioned in the pilot, he's an activist investor. Yeah. Steve Cohn is not an activist right. investor by the definitions right. of those terms. And you'll see Axe make activist plays. Now, yeah. I could list who the activist, famous activist investors are, but I'm not going to. Yeah. And and I will say that you pick little details up from each one. You know you pick little d- details up from each of these people. Uh, there's no question that um, this – the battles that have – I mean, you can look at uh, at various cases and you'll be able to play the game of figuring out, well, who am I – who are we talking about and, and why? When David – look, David and I – So rather than Romana Clay, it's pastiche. Sure, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> This is good. Truffaut. I'm just trying to keep up with Will. Yeah. Um, okay. Here, up on my friend. So, okay, here's my, here's my next question, and then I'll let Will ask you a question. But I, this, this, is, this goes to the thing that we were talking about earlier in the pod, okay? So there has been a, there's been a, there's been a, a history of very successful nonfiction books about Wall Street, crime on Wall Street. You know, but there was the era of Jim Stewart and, and, and writing Dead of Thieves. Uh, Brian Burrow and John Hellyer's book, Barbarians at the Gate. Um, all the Michael Lewis books, you know, many of the Michael Lewis books, more current and then going all the way back to Liar's Poker. So then those books, incredibly successful, sold a lot of copies. Um, there's also been, and, and are also great books, there's been some great movies made about Wall Street and about financial titans. Obviously, Wall Street comes immediately to mind, right? 
But one of the things that's true is that this has not been an industry as central as it is in the American economy and as captivating as it is for many people. It's not been anything that television has captured well. I, there's not a series that's been successful that you can point to, right? This is a long question, but you'll understand where I'm going. You know, one of the things, you know, having spent some time writing about Silicon Valley, one of the challenges about that is that on the page you can write those stories. But part of the reason why there have not been great Silicon Valley TV shows, although, you know, there is one that's... I love Silicon there, Valley. But, but I it's, love but it's show. But it's a, it's a great show, but it's 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 not drama. Yeah. It's not really what Silicon Valley is right. like, okay? It's deep. It's, yeah. yes, <laughs> right. So it, it's a challenge because all of the work goes on in the mind. Sure. It's guys sitting in front of computer terminals. That's true in uh, financial uh, dramas. It's also true of technology dramas. Very hard to put on a screen in a captivating way when most of the real work that's going on is stationary, right, and mental. So I, I loop to this question. How did you see those challenges? Were you acutely aware of the particular challenges posed by this as you started to do the series? And to the extent that you will be successful, do you think part of it has to do with the the particular moment we live in now where there's a receptivity to this kind of thing again you mentioned bernie sanders before but we have a we're still grappling with in the national psyche with what happened to us in 2009 and 2008 yeah i i think that a, a few things one i think that the construct of the show centering on uh these two worlds allows for it right because prosecutorial shows have existed forever. (laughs) And so you're selling the show and marketing the show. Showtime is. It's called Billions, and it is that. But it's also a show that centers around a U.S. attorney. And so that allows you to have a kind of narrative momentum that's not purely cerebral, uh, I think. Also, I think the access that we had, the fact is that, uh, you know, David and I have been telling these kind of stories for a long time. And um, it was great to have Andrew on the pilot to research and go through this and his ideas and perspective. But, you know, week to week, Dave and I are figuring out and have been figuring out how to tell compelling stories that allow uh, the viewer inside. So if it's an activist play, how do you uh, bring people aboard with that, uh, with what that all means in a way that doesn't seem um, impossible to grasp. We also think the audience is really smart now. You know, people watch the financial shows all the time. They read this stuff. 2008 affected them so much that they went and found out. They found out why. Like, actually, people kind of understand uh, default swaps. Like, they they understand a bunch of this stuff now in a way that they didn't. Um, it's also a premium cable show. It's not on a network. Uh, we're not asking you to watch it and have commercials, right? We're asking you to watch 12 episodes. There are the way that the economy, the the after economy of TV works now. I don't mean the financial economy of it, but you know, Monday morning there were seven recaps up on all these sites that tease every one of these themes out. So hopefully people will be engaged enough that they'll want to follow it and figure that stuff out. And and, and lastly, I mean, you know, Dave and I started with Rounders, which presented an insular world with a language of its own, and at the time. I remember so many people wondering if it would be penetrable because no one had made a poker movie since Cincinnati Kid, and it it was presented in a way that seemed really hard to grasp at first, right? I mean, uh, Matt's character asked for uh, three stacks of high society at the beginning of that movie. That's something everybody understands now. Nobody knew what the fuck that was. Am I allowed to say fuck on here? You are. 
Fuck yeah, you're I just did. Yeah. Uh, I, I would never say such foul language. I'm a Midwesterner. Um, I'm curious about the, the notion of timeliness for a show like this. Like, you know, what your lead time is. Like, news changes. Views changes. Personal view changes. When you – when did you first write the, the pilot for this? And then – I don't know if it's officially been – things to be seems to be looking good for Billions. Uh, people receptive well so far. So if you were to get a second season or a third season, how far away do you have to plan ahead? How like how, are you already I mean, working? You are you, I, I can answer. Are you, I can answer. Are you breaking Brian. Brian's already written episode thirty six. Yeah. Are, no, are you I'm, breaking season two now? Are well, you, we will be in the next month, I think. Okay. If, uh, hopefully, if uh, when we officially yes. get picked up right. for a second season. But we're not chasing the news. I mean, that, in any way. That's why it's important to say it's not Stevie right. Cohn and Preet Bharara. We're interested. In I what like, makes I like, I, like how you, I like how you initially said that you didn't know who Steve Cohen was. Well, you I was just called him Stevie. Fucking around with and you. I know, but you just <laughs> called. Never him, but you just called him Stevie. That's what everyone calls him. Steve. In fact, the people who don't ask him in his press, the people who don't know him, call him Stevie. Right. That's the way you know whether someone knows him or not. Okay. Uh, people <laughs> who refer to him as Stevie are, are, are frauds, like yeah. me. So, but but he, he, here's what I'd say. Um, Moment of bracing candor from Brian Koppelman. Mm-hmm. We are trying. Are how are the painkillers hitting you now? John. Not nearly enough. I need I need another hand. Yeah, sure. Yeah, someone this. someone hit his pump so yeah. that it just goes <laughs> sedate, right me, in. Yeah. sedate me so you have a chance to answer. One more, I'm well, going to take his hand right. and guide him through Come the trip. Okay. No, look, we're interested in the. That's why ultimately you can't do rip from the headlines with this. I agree. What you're trying to do is understand the psyche, right? If you're me, if you're if you're Dave and me, what you're trying to do is get inside the why. Like why are? Here's a central question for us. Well, you know. Why can a portfolio manager person working for a giant hedge fund earning $8 million a year feel like she won the lottery, like it's the greatest life she could ever want, she's richer than anyone needs to be, and she's entirely content to live in her gigantic Greenwich home? And then the person sitting next to her earning $8 million a year feels like abject failure. And like if the next year she doesn't earn $12 million, and if she doesn't find a way to leave and start her own hedge fund. And so what is it that dr- drives people to have to achieve a kind of success and power that the rest of us can't even imagine? And, what, you know, look, John, it's something you've studied a lot with. I've talked to you privately a lot about what people who think they should be president th- are thinking and why. And so it's similar. You know, it's it's and, it, and it's uh, and because it's kind of unanswerable, it's worth exploring over and over again. And that's what separates it from something where you have to try to catch the yeah. latest thing that's happening um, on page seven of the journal. You know, I don't feel any pressure to okay. do that at all. But if I were you, here's what I what I would be happy about. Right. If I were uh, responsible for this show, I'm watching the Democratic debate uh, in South Carolina and Bernie Sanders is on fire about the fact that, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton gave all these speeches for Goldman Sachs and that Goldman's, that, that these various firms, including Goldman Sachs, have paid out, you know, vast sums in, 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 uh, in set to settle cases, uh, that were never, that no one was prosecuted, but they paid, uh, criminal fines or civil fines, um, and that that's a, a scandal, you know, and that, and raising that issue in a, in a powerful way that's obviously fueling his candidacy. Doing it on national television in front of millions of people, reminding everyone about all the unresolved issues, legal issues, political issues, ethical issues, moral issues of the great uh, crisis that we had in 2008. Um, having that be – you're not chasing the news, but to have a context in which we are relitigating uh, in an active way on the national stage 
the questions that revolve around responsibility, what should come next, who's to blame, who should be to blame. That's a context that you guys must just be psyched to have because it creates a, a, a big soup you can swim around in. And everybody is just reminded by, by that by that rhetoric that, man, yeah, I'm still pissed about that. Yes. Listen, the the fact that it's in the collective unconscious is, and conscious is yeah. really awesome. Um, but, and, but I think you could always, if you could successfully put um, like the id of these people on display, yeah. I've, at almost any time, I think you could uh, create something that's compelling. And as you said, our show's funny also. Yeah. And is I don't think it takes anything away from the show that you benefit from the moment. I think it's fortuitous and I great. I think so too. Like, you know, like, yeah, man. No, I think so too. Look, um, I have to say, like, I think Margin Call is an incredible film and is the best, I think, sort of uh, autopsy in a way of the psyche of people right at that moment. Right. But I think since then, there hasn't been anything that's attempting to do this. Well, and also, and, I, and, 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 you're, and you're also painting. You guys are, I think, to your credit, you're painting on a bigger canvas. That movie was beautiful and and powerful, but it was in miniature. It's like what's happening sure. in this moment when the when the crash begins in this just little jewel box of a narrative structure, where you guys are, you know, stretching out and and have a much bigger a bigger canvas and a much uh, wider. Yeah, you palette. have to bring. You have to. I mean, I think that those last scenes with Jeremy Irons and Spacey actually, um, although they're shot in miniature and they're small. They're about, uh, they're about the whole course, thing. They're of actually course, of course, of course. about what makes somebody sitting in that chair. Like in the same way you said to me, is that is this about Steve Cohn? Uh, you know, no, you know, is that about Lloyd Blankfein? Uh, right? Is that movie about Lloyd Blankfein? And if it is, I don't know if it is. I don't know the people who made that movie, but if it is, uh, I don't know J.C. Chandler, the writer director, is incredible. But if if it is, then I think that movie showed us in an incredibly clear way what somebody like Lloyd might have been thinking. As he decided to allow that toxicity to out there and to take hold, right? So, um, yes, but, but, so I think Margin Call to me actually is a gigantic movie and, um, hangs over a lot of stuff. But we, and, and so we look at that and then, yeah, think, well, how do we do this in a way that maybe more people can grab onto and understand? And how can we make you, the viewer, uh, t- attach yourself to these characters? You know, um, kind of laugh along with them at their excesses, uh, maybe start to excuse some of them. And then how can we, in the second half of the season, start pulling stuff back that maybe makes you examine it all and yourself and your take on it slightly differently? Will, you have, your la- you have the last question uh, to give right. to Mr. Koppelman. Hopefully it will be polite, but also probing. Okay, well, I can't, I can't guarantee probing, but I will guarantee polite, sir. Uh, I'm curious, when something like this, it feels like too, a lot, so many shows, once they get to like the third season or fourth season, you know, uh, I'm watching The Americans, right? I'm getting caught up on The Americans. And I'm, I've just finished the first season, which is starting season four. And everyone keeps telling me, oh, the show really hasn't even started yet. And that's a fascinating thing for me. It must be, I can't fathom what it's like to you, the idea that like, whatever season three or season four, if a theoretical season three or season four happened, it might not even be about hedge fund. Like it's about it's, it's about the people. Is it, is, it, is it, like? Do you feel like these characters are are people that well, yeah, are go, fungible uh, enough? Even if it's not in four years, if people don't care about this stuff as much, or if it's a different if well, a different we climate, wouldn't it won't shift matter. because people. I will say, well, I don't think he'll like go I, become know, a fisherman listen, or something. Yeah, it's but. not because I will say I don't think about that exact thing ever uh, about sort of like where the where 
where the viewing audience is in terms of what they want. I've just never, right. my, like, no movie but in my career a, has reflected that. But no, you do. It's a different show. It's I would say even to, to your point, though, like, um, I know the pilot of our show is one thing. When you're making a pilot, it's one thing. And I know that by the time we're at episode 11 and 12, it's already a different show. Yeah, yeah. And and that is intentional in every way. That was intentional from the beginning. Um, and so it's great now that we're in a place where we could give critics six episodes. And so a lot of the critical praise for the show has been when people have watched all of it and they start the six. Yeah. And they're starting to get an idea. I only wish we could have given everybody 12 because I know that what happens as you get toward the 10, 11, 12 is um, – it will cause you to sort of go back and understand in much greater detail what we were thinking in, in the beginning. And I imagine that's going to happen in season two, three, and four as well, that it's going to be – it's all going to stack, right? It all stacks so that it accretes. The, the emotion, the power hopefully accretes um, and causes you to have deeper connection and, and thought and feeling about about all of this. Um, I will promise that we will not chase, though, that if the world suddenly is like, oh, we're not interested in this, suddenly Bobby Axelrod <laughs> is a commercial fisherman. That's not going to happen. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, for the, my friends and, that are And TV he's never going to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Ah, I always like to Arizona Cardinals I always <laughs> like to backload these things with the, like a break, just a little bit of news. And I will confess that on this instance, Brian and I have discussed this at some length about the arc of where the story is going mm-hmm. over the course of multiple seasons. And I will just a spoiler alert, everybody. At the very end of season three, mm-hmm. Bobby Axelrod pees on Paul G- Giamatti's chest. And, right. and the circle That's, is complete. And then the circle is complete. And the circle is complete. Well, well, because it is modeled, obviously, after Heilman and Halperin. <laughs> oh. Oh. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And right? come, come, you and know, that, that feels like maybe how we should end luckily, this. Thing, luckily, luckily, <laughs> luckily, we still have the power of the edit here. So. I, and let me just say, I will, uh, the amount of respect I will lose for you if you cut that line. <laughs> Brian, compliment. It's been our pleasure most of the time to have you here with us today. Good luck with Billions. It is really great. Billions is fantastic. Um, uh, the one thing I do know is that there's never a series where a pilot is really any good. You know, you look at it, it's always brown. I mean, like the, the color, it's all kind of crude and coarse and, you know, cartoonish. And if I always think, you know, like with the newspaper column, I want to wait six months before I ever judge a newspaper column with a new series with high ambitions. I always want to wait six or seven episodes before I make any judgment. But the thing about this is that the Billions pilot is so good by the standards of just any episode, let alone a pilot. You see it and you're like, okay, these guys are playing this game at a different level. This is like, if this is where they're starting, man, this is going to be a fucking great ride. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Happy Thanks for having you. me here. This is super fun to be a part of this. All right. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for coming. All right. So that was episode two of Culture Caucus, the new uh, podcast uh, from, brought to you by Bloomberg Politics. Nailed uh, it. We nailed it. I think it. I think it was actually pretty good. Don't I you think, think so, too. Um, uh, we'll be back again sometime soon. I believe Will and I will be doing one of these next from the great state of Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, where we'll be headed fairly soon for the Iowa caucuses. Um, will, want to say goodbye? Yes, our guest, I believe, will be a butter sculpture. I think that will be fair. A, bu- a butter cow. A butter cow, exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so please make sure to uh, – you can see us on iTunes. You can rate, please rate and review us on iTunes. That's always very, very helpful. You, of course, find this podcast also on SoundCloud. Uh, you can email us at culturecaucus at gmail.com. You can also, of course, make sure to watch – there's a show that, that – you're, you're on a show, right? I'm on a show. You're on a show. You should watch, with all due respect – on Bloomberg Television and then also on, what's the other channel? MSNBC. MSNBC, that's right. You also. can catch it two, there's two times a day you can see it. Right. Five o'clock on Bloomberg. Please go watch it then. But if you happen to miss it then, you can also see it at six o'clock that's at true. MSNBC. And of course, you can also find this podcast on BloombergPolitics.com and on the Bloomberg Journal. That's right. I love that. We are everywhere. We're right. everywhere. All right. Peace out.
Bye.